Hey, this is Jason Gilligan with EarFluence. We produce this show as well as the Emergency Medicine NPMPA Workforce Podcast hosted by Ivy Clinician's Omar Nava. Leon has taken a break this week, but wanted to share an episode of Omar's podcast called Feeling Unprepared for Emergency Medicine After PA School because according to Leon, many physicians are concerned about how to manage early career EMPAs and MPs in their departments. Some great info here that can be helpful to all emergency room practitioners. We'll be back next week, but until then, enjoy this episode of the Emergency Medicine NP and PA Podcast. I love what we get to do, and I'm like, I don't want to quit, but I could not do the last two years for 10 years. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant, been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast to all the emergency medicine clinicians out there. We know what you go through and we appreciate it. Today, I am very happy and a little giddy to host our guests, Caroline Chadwell and Carly Holmes. At this point in the podcast, I usually ask them to uh, give a brief history about their journey becoming an EMPA, but I'd like to offer a little bit of preview before I turn over the mic and the stage to them. Caroline joined our group. She was what I call the class of COVID. 2020. She joined our group administratively on paper in late December of 2019. She experienced what it's like to have a fast, rapid turnover of the contract holder, meaning the old contract holder had lost a contract and we had a new contract holder. So if that wasn't stressful enough, we go into the new year and bam, COVID hits right about the time she's credentialed and ready to start her first shift. And as everybody knows, listening to this podcast, ERs became these desolate wastelands. Everybody was afraid to come. And this hurt the bottom line of contractors. So money being the issue that it is, practical issue, I was told the same thing that uh, many leaders were told. We have to cut hours, so get rid of your last hire first. And who, who was that? Caroline Chadwell. More about that little episode later. Now let's move over to Carly. Carly joined us a year later. So now COVID is in its full swing, and she's a brand new PA joining emergency medicine, and she gets to do it while we're in the midst of COVID, holding a million patients in the ER, no nurses available. Carly uh, was part of the origins of what I like to call waiting room medicine. I don't know too many folks that could endure what they've endured and make it on the other side, just that alone let alone becoming top-notch clinicians. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our guests, and we'll go with age first. Uh, Caroline, tell us a little bit about your a brief story of your journey to becoming an emergency medicine PA. Hey, guys. I'm Caroline. I went to Cherveca, which is a school here in Nashville, and I graduated in 2019, August 2019. And then I started in the ED at Clarksville, March of 2020, right when COVID hit. Um, 
I did have a, a rotation at the facility that I did end up getting the job um, at, and uh, I've been in the ED ever since. And then I do work um, part time um, at a at a trauma facility here in Nashville as well. Carly, tell us a brief story of your journey to becoming an emergency medicine PA. We'll get into details later, but a brief story. How did you how did you become an EMPA? Pretty similar track to Caroline. I went to Trevecca too. I graduated a year later. Um, and actually started exactly a year later in the same ER. Becoming a PA, I'm from South Carolina. Honestly, my becoming a PA itself, like not that interesting. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Met a PA that seemed, I thought medicine would be a good field to go into. Knew I didn't want to go to med school. And I got really lucky and that it ended up working out for me because it was kind of an on the whim decision to try to go to PA school. And here I am. Great. Let's move into our topics. Um, let's first talk about uh, your recent experience in, in PA school. So both of you are, are a good source uh, to tell the audience, what is PA school like these days, especially for some of us old dinosaurs uh, that went you know, 20 years ago or, or more? I believe it's a tall task to teach medicine in one didactic year and one clinical year, and then prepare that PA student to take national board exams and then to go into an entry-level job in just primary care alone. So let's just get some brief answers. Caroline, do, do you agree with that? What's your experience about just that little uh, journey that I talked about? Yeah, I agree. I, do, I think that the most difficult part of PA school is still um, the didactic portion, just trying to squeeze uh, all of medicine. I think my program was about 15 months, but just trying to squeeze all of that into a 15-month window is very challenging. And then, uh, you know, you only have clinicals for 12 months. So, you know, my ER rotation was like, you know, six to seven, I guess, maybe eight weeks. Um, and it, this is maybe an unpopular opinion, but I personally believe PA school needs to be a little bit longer. I, I wish that we had, you know, maybe not in, in all specialties, but especially ED and, you know, like ICU, critical medicine certain rotations, I wish that we had a required residency, kind of like med school, which obviously that brings into the argument, well, then just go to med school. But um, I do I do feel like programs 24 to 27 months, it is hard to get someone trained to just send them out on their way, especially for the ED. So it's funny that you say that I've made this observation my entire career, and I think I've mentioned it on a couple episodes of the podcast, that my class had uh, a funny observation. We We reflected and said, you do everything it takes to compete to get into PA school, and you pr pray, God, please let me get into PA school. You do everything it takes to get in there. And then once you're in there, at some point, you're saying, oh, my goodness, when, when are we going to get out? Can we just get out? And then you get out, and, you, and we would say, that was so irresponsible of them. Why did they let us out? We're obviously not ready. Um, it reminded me of a scene in the movie Step Brothers where they asked to build bunk beds and they collapse and they come back and yell at the parents and say, this is so irresponsible. Why did you let us do this? Car Carly, what, what's your experience on that about just just a short road of didactic clinical year and, and preparing somebody just for primary care alone? W would you say that's a tall order? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I felt the same way as about like in the middle of PA school, you're just ready to get be done with it and like looking to the end. And then now I think about so many times how much I'd love to like just go back and sit in class and, and just be able to just listen and learn and not have the pressure of taking care of patients at the same time. Because 
obviously we're all still learning. Caroline and I both talk about like, what are you like studying outside of school or outside of work? Um, but no, I definitely agree. And I think it's changed. Like Caroline and I are both really young PAs too. And I think that the shift in the PA profession is definitely, I mean, there's still people who this is their second career, but now there, I feel like it's, if you go into most PA classrooms, it's probably more people like us who are, I mean, I went straight out of college. I'm not, Caroline, I think you maybe took a gap year, but, um, and I don't think, you know, I'm doing okay, but I also think that there's a lot I lack in experience that I would have been better prepared for, especially something like working in emergency medicine, but even just in primary care, if I had more experience in medicine. So I think that students are starting to be a little more lax on like their clinical experience before PA school, it seems like. I think it's very, very shrewd that you pick up on something that I think we've seen in the market. This is what I call a, a tug of war in market. In a marketplace, you, you have to have a minimum of two people, a, a seller of a good and service and a consumer. But many times in a market, you have multiple players. But in this market of, of uh, training PAs, as you know, when, when this profession started in the 70s, it evolved because uh, founders like Dr. Stead uh, and others said, hey, there's some really high-speed Navy corpsmen, Army combat medics that have a lot of experience. I wonder if we could parlay that experience and, and supplement their training and have them do something in the area of primary care. So, you know, so, so that's what it was modeled over. And as you aptly said, uh, Carly, the, the average age has, has gotten younger and maybe the lack of experience of, of there not being a first career is, is new. I'm not here in 2023 to say that that's wrong. This is an interesting experiment to watch. If the market has a demand of saying, nope, we need to put out more PAs, there is a big demand. Uh, there's not enough physicians, the population is growing, we're spreading out to remote areas, we, we, we just need to do things differently. I think what we're watching is the market responding to the market demand. And I, I'm good friends with a handful of educators, super smart people in, in, in the PA uh, realm, and I, I believe they've gotten this. I believe that there's been a transition over, over the years. Your PA program looked a lot different than my PA program because they had to address some things. So it'll be interesting to watch. I, I tell everybody this profession is in its infancy when you compare it like to say nursing. We're still trying to figure ourselves out. The market is trying to figure ourselves out. Supervising docs are trying to figure ourselves out. So uh, very interesting that you make that observation. Let's get some quick responses from both of you on how well do you think the average modern PA program prepares a graduate to go from PA school right into emergency medicine? Caroline? I think the PA school prepares you to pass the boards. And the boards are great in the sense that I believe every school needs to have a set of standards. The PA program needs to have a set of standards. But to get to emergency medicine, no. Um, you know, and Carly and I talk about this a lot. I think our first few years out of school, we treat, we're treating this as our residency because we didn't get a residency program. Also, I don't think we said this, but I'm, I'm 20. I just turned 29 and Carly just turned 27. Correct, Carly. Uh, so we, I agree with Carly. A lot of our, a lot of my peers are in their twenties or early thirties. But when we started school, when I started school about six years ago, the majority of my class were, are in their mid, early to late twenties. 
Um, and I agree, a lot of us came straight out of college. I had one gap year, but we didn't have the prior experience. But um, no, I don't think it, you know, the, it's, it was nice to have a, a rotation in emergency medicine, but, you know, it's to, to leave that, graduate, and then, and then boom, be, be on your own. I feel like, uh, you know, there were a lot of days where I was like, how is this legal? <laughs> <laughs> which med- medicine wise, you know, I definitely felt like our program did a good job and like, you know, preparing us to, again to pass the boards and it was a good school, but you know, nothing really will prepare you for that first job, emergency medicine or, or whatever rotation, but especially emergency medicine when there's just such a large amount of knowledge you have to know. And, and before I go over to Carly, in all fairness, I don't think I'm certain your program, you know, they don't advertise, hey, come to our program and we're going to make you an emergency medicine operator immediately. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think any programs are, are, are saying that. And I'm not saying that that's what you're saying either. Um, Carly, what, what about you? Uh, how well do you think the average modern PA program prepares a graduate to go right into emergency medicine? I agree with Caroline um, in that, like, not great. It prepares you for all programs everything they talk about throughout school are geared toward the boards, which I agree, that's an important thing. But, and then like the basis of most PA programs, I think there are some specialty programs that are like, hey, we have an emphasis in surgery or things like that. Like most are geared toward primary care. So, um, and like, as we know, primary care and emergency medicine are really different. And even just like talking with my friends that are in primary care, graduated from PA school, just like how we treat different things. It's, it's different. So being someone trained in mainly primary care and then starting in emergency medicine, I mean, now my mindset has shifted, but going into it, it was definitely, that's like a whole nother learning curve on top of it. Just kind of you being someone new to medicine is already a lot to handle. And then adjusting, I'm most of what I've been trained in medicine is from a primary care perspective. So then going into the emergency room, it's very different to adjust your mindset. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. Very good. Um, let's go into your first year as new grad hires, and let's try some kind of uh, rapid-fire brief uh, questions. So I want you to think back what your experience was in your first month, your first three to six months, and then rounding out your first year of practice. Caroline, 
What was your experience with fellow NPs and PAs that were already working in the department when you showed up? I think the majority of the my peers were supportive and helpful, but I learned an important experience that's that you cannot, uh, unfortunately, you just can't trust everyone. And quickly figured out, you know, you really have to protect yourself and protect who are, who are the people that you're trusting clinically and who are the people that you're trusting professionally and just as a friend. Um, but it was very wild to just come in and, and, and definitely see the, the PAs who I respected and looked up to and see, you know, this is the kind of PA I want to be and want to emulate. And that was important to have people, which I know this will be a question later, but important to have experienced providers because that's who we learned from. And I feel like uh, COVID has quickly shifted that and a lot of our really experienced PAs have quit. But it, it was very interesting to see just kind of the levels walking in of the people with experience, people with experience who maybe I didn't agree necessarily completely clinically, even as a new grad, and just seeing like the whole melting pot of like what the ED had to offer, I guess. Great. Caroline, uh, Carly, can you tell us what your experience was initially with fellow NPs and PAs in the department? Pretty similar to what Caroline said. It is interesting. With, like the melting pot is a good way to describe it because that is what the PA, like a nurse practitioner profession is. There's a lot of us that are from different areas, nurse practitioners who've been an ER nurse for a year, maybe for years have been uh, primary care. And so I, for the most part, just I experienced just a lot of support. I can't think of any really like bad experiences I had. I always felt like everyone was available and there to help me when I had questions and things like that, which I really appreciated. Caroline, how about your experience with just general nursing staff and techs in the department? What was that like in your first few months and rounding out your first year? I can say now that I do, I do love everyone, but I do think it was tough. I think people come in, no matter if you're a new PA, new nurse, anything, and there there's a level of, you know, can we trust you? It took a while, it took a lot longer to gain trust and respect um, than I realized. And that was a portion that I honestly didn't think about before coming in. Um, and I do love all of our support team and our nurses and everyone, but it, it took months. And some people, it took years. And I'm sure there's still some people I like don't trust me, and that's okay. But it took a long time. Carly, how about you? Your experience with just in general, the nursing staff and techs in the first few months, the first year of practice? Yeah, definitely agree with Caroline there. It was, and then that's another thing going back to like us being young. Most of the nurses, not anymore now, because now pretty much our whole department is younger nurses, travel nurses. But when I first started, they're all older than me and have way more experience than me. So for me to be, especially if I disagree with them, if they think a patient needs to room or like needs, if I say this patient needs a room and they're like, no, they don't. I'm like, well, who are the, who should we be listening to this new PA or the ER nurse that's been doing this for 20 years. Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely enough. That was a hurdle I wasn't expecting was gaining the trust of everyone and also having that another level of like a whole other level of making me question myself. Yeah, definitely wasn't ready for that. But it is great. And I think it probably took a solid year for me to feel like, OK, I think that they all know what I'm doing. And just another layer to that. Now that we're experienced, I think Caroline and I are both really approachable and we've both experienced now working everyone likes you or you think most people like you, we feel like a lot of times we end up being the ones that people come to like, Hey, can you come see this patient? Can you do this for me? And it's like, 
why do because we're like the nice approachable ones now we're the ones they come to for everything isn't that funny i just i always find i find that dynamic about human behavior really truly so fascinating i, I will say before i go on to the next one i kind of i i think that you would both agree uh, if you've talked to friends who've gone to like to single practice uh, clinics that uh, by working in an emergency uh, department, you have such repeated exposure to so many various and diverse multiple personalities because it's like being at a train station versus, say, going to one clinic and working with the same two or three people every day all the time. You know, having this these multiple interactions with so many different people in a, in a department, I think is is good for a, for a, for somebody's professional development and how to hone your skills. Uh, interacting with folks that might have uh, challenging personalities. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a plus of work in emergency medicine. Caroline, tell us about your experience with supervising docs in your first few months and rounding out your first year. Also very similar. Um, it took a long time to gain trust. And, and there's still, again, probably some who, who don't, trust me, but it took a long time. And Honestly, the, what helped the most was the relationship aspect, you know, and then just over time, them seeing me learn and grow and then gaining that trust. But um, it takes a long time in certain supervising positions, um, you know, to, it took longer than others. But it, it would, I would say about a year, really, for the majority to gain a sense of trust, which I understand. I mean, I, they don't know who I am. And now that I've been doing this for three years, when I do see a new grad or someone new without experience, I think everyone kind of treats them and says, oh, well, let's see what they can do and kind of treats them with trepidation. Uh, but it, it took about a year. And Carly, how about your experience with supervising docs in your first few months and rounding out your first year? I think one thing similar to Caroline, it's tough, but it's something that you understand and I, I would be the same way. Um, and at some point along the line, whenever I accepted the position, I remember telling myself, and I think that, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm excited. It's, it's going to be hard. I'm going to do this. But I just remember thinking to myself constantly, like, you're going to feel dumb. And if you get to the point where that is like keeps you from going and asking questions or things like that, like that's when you're in trouble. So I, I at least prepared myself for that. Like, you're going to feel dumb. And I think that that helped me because there were times that I felt dumb asking a question or felt like I was wait, like bothering my supervising physician, but I always still asked the question. And I'm sure there were times that it maybe was a silly question that I shouldn't have been worried about, but there were times that it was an important question. And, and you know, that's what they're there to do. You know, that's their job is to supervise you. And so I had to always remind myself of that. You have to care. Obviously you care what they think of you and you're wanting to earn their trust, but that can't be what drives you because if them liking you, is what's driving you, you're not going to want to bother them. Um, so obviously I care what they thought of me, but that wasn't, if I let that be everything I, that was driving me, then that would have been a bad thing. So you care enough, but not too much, because if you care too much, it's going to drive you crazy. And that would have been a whole nother layer of stress onto just being a new PA in the ER. But no, now I, I think that once you earn the trust and um, like Carolyn said, there's probably some that still don't trust me and that's okay. You know, I do. I feel like we do have like really good relationships with most of our supervising physicians and I enjoy learning from them and working with them. And it's interesting now I'm two years out. I've started another PRN job. I work at a few other ERs and um, 
I was telling Caroline, it's so weird for people to not know me. I'm like not used to having to prove myself again. So I think that advice that you just gave Carly, a lot of folks are going to find very valuable. Listeners to this podcast could be uh, junior experienced EMPs and MPs. And when I say junior, I don't only mean in chronological age. There could have been NPs and PAs who tried their hand at urgent care or family practice for about four years and are just now making uh, the change over to emergency medicine. And some of the things that you just advise may seem simple or, or superficial, but I think it's very important for folks to listen to what you just said and learn from your experience and said, you know what? Uh, Omar Nava said that that's a pretty sharp PA over there. And I listened to that chick and she's really got it together. She's figured it out. She looked back at her time and she said, this is what worked for me. And she kind of told us, this is the mindset that you should have going into this. So uh, very valuable uh, experience on that front. There's a lot of discussion on how uh, an EMP or NP should be prepared to work in the emergency department. And suggestions are on a spectrum, wide spectrum, and they range anywhere from uh, you should not work in the emergency department unless you went to an academic postgraduate fellowship. Or perhaps, uh, well, maybe if there wasn't an academic-based one, because they're not everywhere in the country, maybe you should have gone to a formal postgraduate uh, program that's developed by the employer, not academic-based. And that's great. Uh, but again, they're not everywhere either. But ERs are everywhere and spreading out into rural areas. And not enough emergency medicine physicians. The population is growing. The QD is growing. So now the, the country is faced with, you, it's challenging to make a one-size-fits-all solution for every department everywhere in the country. Because every department, I've always said, has their own unique needs and their own limited resources. So I've always said, listen, leaders in emergency departments are wise enough and smart enough to decide what they need for themselves. When you go to the grocery store, you, you get items that you need for yourself, for your life, for your liking. You don't get what your neighbor said, this is what you should have. So ER leaders are smart enough to, to develop uh, a list of their needs and then say, now let's go out and match our needs. And if you have access to an academic postgraduate uh, EM program, great. If you don't, but you have access to an employer-sponsored, we're developing our own program, great. But if you don't have that, do you too still think it's possible to bring in a new graduate and say, we don't have an academic-based uh, uh, program. We don't have a formal employer-based program, but we have a few senior PAs who are going to try to develop some kind of structured experience for you for your first few months, for your first year. We're going to restrict selection of what charts you pick up. We're going to have you talk to us uh, uh, about your patients. We're going to review your charts. We're going to come back to you and, and monitor you and, and protect you on shifts and be on shifts with you. Do you still think that there is value to that for departments that don't have access to academic-based postgraduate programs, that don't have an employer-developed postgraduate program? Let's go with you first, Caroline. Yes, absolutely. Because, uh, I, I mean, Carly and I are the byproduct of that. Uh, we did not, you know, we graduated and then boom, we were in the department. But I think there's several important factors you have to have. One, you have to have people in your corner protecting you. Uh, and we had you. And I could go on and on about you to our podcast <laughs> listeners, but we had uh, a boss, a.k.a. Omar, who who took all of the hits, who was just a wall. He just, he protected us. We could come to him with any questions. 
he was the, the safety net that we needed in order to step out into the world. Um, two, this just has to be something that the, it has to be the right fit. Um, not everyone's built for emergency medicine. So I think a lot of students go to emergency medicine and they think, oh, this is so cool. I want to do it. But you have to have the right personality and the right person to step into that role. Someone I think who has faced adversity, who, who can handle it, who can handle the stress, which I know as a, you know, as an employer, that'd be hard sometimes to piece out. Um, and then third, I think, um, you have to be willing to put in the work outside of work. Um, again, Carly and I always talk about even two to three years in, Hey, did you listen to this podcast? Or, Hey, I saw this really cool case or constantly striving to learn and grow every day and realizing that if you choose emergency medicine, like this is a growth path that your first year is going to be much steeper than the majority of your peers. And you're going to have to, on your days off, work on becoming a better PA outside of what is offered to you at work. Um, and then just also for having a good support system outside of work um, who that you can vent with um, and, and talk with and talk things over. But I think there has to be uh, a, a pattern or a... Um, a support system there where it will not work. Um, and I think the reason Carly and I succeeded was majority due to you, but because of the support system that was in place um, and the plan that was in place uh, to help us succeed without having gone through a grad program. Carly, do you still think there's a place for brand new grad EMPAs and NPs to go to work in an emergency department if there's no access to an academic-based post-grad program? no access to an employer-sponsored structural formalized program, but the the employer's uh, structure a scenario for you so that your experience is protected, it's mentored, so that you're professionally developed? Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely do. I agree with Caroline because that's where what came where we came out of. And I think, like she said, there's certain things that have to be a part of it. Um, one of the things she said, like being the right fit, and I don't, necessarily I don't know if I have a good answer for that part and I'm interested to kind of see like what you're what you guys are doing with it uh, about like finding people with the right fit because I do think that's important part like finding the right person I don't know how you like identify those factors though but like Caroline said certain things like having been through like chat like I think you mentioned something about like being challenged beforehand like going through things I think that's something when I try to think about like, how am I okay? Like after doing this for, you know, how did I get through it? Like having experiences that have challenged you in the past are going to help you. But um, as far as actually like working in the department, I think like what she said, there's certain things that have to be in place as well. Like we had you, but everyone has to be on board. Like not just, you know, the the supervising physicians have to be on board, the other PAs, nurse practitioners, like who's going to be, in charge of overseeing that person. And in our case, like you were everything for that, it seems like, but yeah, I think that has to be something that like if a program, if a um, company is going to take that on, making sure that they're prepared for all of those little things that are going to come up, like, okay, well, if we're going to limit them to only picking up certain people, like what is that parameter and who's going to monitor that? And then who are they going to, you know, are they staffing every single patient, things like that. I think this is very important for our listeners uh, to hear both of your experience because, as I said, it, when I was prepping this question with the background, it would be great if everybody had access to an academic-based postgraduate. Uh, I, I think the three of us are fellow nerds, 
that we love reading and we love learning and, and we would take advantage of any opportunity. But those academic programs just don't exist everywhere. So next up, how about an employer-based uh, professional, you know, developed uh, program? That would be great also. But they're not everywhere uh, as well. But ERs are everywhere and, and they need more and more of us. So then the question becomes, so can you just never hire a brand new grad uh, PA? And to that, I say resoundingly, no. I, I think it's incumbent on employers and leaders to think outside the box, to be very selective in, in choosing uh, candidates uh, like you two that we believe can make it through some really crappy times and, and handle the training and have the true intrinsic desire, sincere desire to make it through to the other side. And then what do you know? Two leading clinicians emerge on the other side. So I, I think that there's still a place for this because there's, there's a need. You, you both are now highly regarded as PAs in the emergency department. You're both noted for your strong work ethic, your clinical knowledge, your critical thinking, your calm demeanors, and your resilience. I've said, I, I, I don't think I've said this to either one of you, but I've said this about both of you to a number of people, and that's if the Marvel Universe needed uh, an addition of two new superheroes, uh, these two people would be it because they survived being a class of COVID. They survived what it's like to be in a very, very busy, uh, under-equipped and under-resourced emergency department and, and they're doing well clinically. So Caroline, how have you not been broken yet? What is it that keeps you going? Because we know not everybody survives the process that both of you went through. We know that many people tap out respectfully, and, and I respect that. How have we not yet broken you? I think one, I think one was just my sheer motivation. I just, um, the first six months where I thought I was going to get fired every day, I was like, just make it a year. Just make it one year. That's all you have to do. Um, motivation, second, would be support. I have it's very blessed to have great friends and family. I think third, support at work. I mean, you were incredible at supporting us and, 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 and motivating us. And then just finding peers within work. I mean, Carly and I, it, you know, I also I think it's good to have another new grad to come in with. And it was really great how it's set up because I was there kind of a year before Carly and I feel like I could kind of help her get to this point. And now I feel like Carly's surpassed me, but it's nice to have a, a peer who's in the trenches with you, who, um, you, you're kind of buddies and you're in it together. And I think that's what's helped the most. Um, and then you get to this point and I honestly don't even know when it happened, but you get to this point where you're like, okay, maybe I'm not going to kill someone today. And it gets a little bit better. And then you may have a stretch where you feel, what am I doing? And even even now, I still feel that. I still feel some days where I'm like, I feel very much like a new grad still. What am I doing? Um, and then you blink. It's been a year. And then you blink. It's been two. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wow, I've been practicing for three years. But it's taking it little wins and days at a time. And you can't look at it. You know, we all make mistakes. We all you know, miss things and you can't beat yourself up. You have to, you have to move on and recognize that you're trying to become the best PA you can and there's going to be bumps on the way, but the end goal is the same. I'm going to show my age a little bit uh, here. When Caroline was applying as, as a new grad uh, that year, I could only take one because I only had enough bandwidth 
to to develop a protected structure for one. And I, I remember going through the different uh, applications and CVs and having telephone interviews. But the one one of the things that I still remember that struck me about Caroline is she was a captain on an athletic team in her college. And we talked a little bit about that. And I said, well, this is it. She's she's a Michael Jordan, but she just doesn't know it yet. She's going to take her lessons from that in leadership and adversity, and she's just going to push through this. And Carly, before I give you a chance to answer, um, I've described you to other people, you've never heard this, as uh, the Rocky character in the movie, where his opponents would say, I just keep hitting the guy, but he refuses to go down. He will not go down. And I remember uh, Carly just having this presence of, there's literally nothing you can do to me, man. You can't throw anything at me. I'm not quitting and I'm not giving up. So let's just keep going. So Carly, we'll give you a chance now. How have we not yet broken you? What keeps you going? You know, I definitely had the benefit of not just having you like Caroline did, but I also had you and Caroline. I would not have made it through the last two years without Caroline. Um, I can't imagine starting when she did and not having someone I could look ahead and see, okay, Caroline did this, you know, she just did this. It's doable. I can do it. You know, she did all of that from scratch. I think she was the first new grad hired in our department in like, oh, I think 10 years. Um, so, um, that was definitely, I had that and to my advantage and not just you, but also her in my corner, um, and other people in the department too that I knew like wanted me to succeed, but you two were definitely, you know, there for me always. I still think about how often I used to call both of you on shift and I shake my head. I can't believe I bothered you guys that much, but, um, yeah, I think like Caroline said, just like the motivation when I think about my first year, um, it's a blur, honestly. Um, and I think that I just, I re you really wanted it. Um, and I wanted to succeed. And so, you kind of have to put blinders on going back to the thing I said about like supervising physician relationship. Like um, you have to care, but you can't let, you can't care about those things too much. Cause if you do, I definitely wouldn't have lasted um, or caring like what other people think. Same with nurses, not trusting you. Like you have to be okay with these people don't think I should be here or don't think I'm good enough. And I have to be okay with that. Cause I know that I am and that I will, that I, even if I'm not great right now, I will be. Um, but yeah, I think just the fact that we both really wanted it, like, like I said, I kind of stumbled into the PA profession and if it hadn't worked out well for me, if I, I guess I say it worked out well for me because I do love it. But if I didn't, if you don't love it, I would not have lasted, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so I got lucky because I really did just kind of decide to do it and it worked out. So I think really caring about what we're doing. And then I think this is in every specialty of medicine, but especially emergency medicine, you kind of struggle with your patient population. Everyone has a different patient population, but sometimes you're probably going to get frustrated with them. But this is even in primary care, every specialty. I think having something that makes you, obviously we all care about people. We want to help people. That's led part of what led to us doing, becoming a PA, but having something that you can go back to. I remember our boss said one time something about like caring for our, we work, uh, there's an army base near our hospital. And so the fact that he always thinks to himself, like, these are military veterans, and like, we get to care for them and their families, like all they've done for our country, like, 
we get to care for them. And I never thought about it like that. And that's something I do think about sometimes when I get frustrated, just in general at work, like having something that you can think about like that to come back to will help you forget about all the BS stuff and um, come back to actually doing the work. So in the 20 years that I've been practicing, you know, I've, I've often said the following, I've said this on other episodes, you know, f- physicians have a pretty uniform track of education and training. They go to a residency, which are pretty universally, you know, regulated. They take boards and they go out and practice. So the level of variance, of variability among emergency physicians, there's always going to be some there because there's variability just with human performance, human personality. But the variability there is going to be narrow. But now compare that to the variability of an emergency medicine NP and PA, the variability amongst us is very wide um, because we don't have a universal training for emergency medicine. So as I, as I look back 20 years, and, and I've pondered this throughout my career, that the, the trick in the best, the best employment of emergency medicine NPs and PAs is matching the right person with their knowledge base and skill sets with the right ED. Uh, I may open up an emergency department tomorrow and I decide I need five fast-track only PAs and MPs. That's all I need. If I match for that, then those MPs and PAs, and they know that ahead of time, they're not going to be upset. I'm not going to be upset. Nursing's not going to be upset. Everybody's going to know what I get. But if I take that person and start drowning them into trauma bays or seeing a whole bunch of level twos or very high-level ESI-3 patients, Perhaps the provider's ill-equipped. It's going to take a hit on their self-esteem, their confidence. They're going to be unhappy. Supervising docs are going to be unhappy. Nurses are going to be unhappy. Perhaps peers are going to be unhappy. And the reverse is true. If I hire either Carly or Caroline, these high-speed PAs, and then I only use them in fast track and that's it, they're going to feel underutilized. So I've just kind of given an explanation of what I think one of the problems is in employing and the perception of the use of EM, NPs, and PAs, and that's improper matching. You, you both have been practicing a while. I'd like to hear your comments on the dangers of, of mismatching, as I've described, and the benefits when there's a good match. Caroline? So something I think did help Carl and I is that we had a rotation at the facility that we work at. So we both got to see what it was really like. Um, but I agree with you. I think Carly and I both have just seen a lot of turnover for a lot of reasons, but some of it is because they don't, they don't like the fit. They they don't like the acuity or maybe the facility. And I think it is very important because people need to know what they're walking into. I think Carly and I both would be unhappy if we worked, you know, primarily just at a fast track. Um, and I think some people want that. And in emergency medicine, as a PA, there's just so much variability based off the facility you work at. You know, some facilities I know Crawley works at, you have to staff every two and three with the position. That's not where we work at primarily, but, um, and then some facilities only want their mid-levels in fast track. And then some facilities, you know, mid-levels or APPs are, are innovating. And so it, the variability is wild. And so is the, um, experience of a PA or NP. And I, I think it is hugely important because if someone doesn't feel comfortable and especially if they're facing adversity, the likelihood they're going to quit is very high. 
Um, and I think one of the reasons Carly and I have stayed so long is because we started out in that. And so, you know, we recognize like this is kind of like what we've gotten ourselves into. But if you come from an outside facility, it is hard because you just don't know what to expect. Carly, what are your thoughts on uh, the disadvantages of a bad mismatch and the benefits of maximizing a good match? I agree with Caroline, and I guess I never really considered it like that. Like, we did know exactly what we were getting into because we had the rotation there. Um, but I think, you know, that's something that would be important um, in bringing on new hires, making sure they know exactly what they're being hired for. Is that to work primarily in fast track or not? Because, of course, that's going to make a big difference. And then, um, like you said, dangers say that that isn't communicated well. And someone who's been maybe someone who's had like 10 years of ER experience, but they've only worked in fast track coming into a department where they're not utilized like that. It's not going to go well. Um and then, you know, I think that our being in emergency medicine, you definitely can't have an ego, but everyone has a little bit of an ego. So imagine that 10-year experience PA coming into a fast, uh, an ER and not being able to handle it. No one wants to quit early on, you know, so they're probably going to try to do everything they can to make it, but it might be, and they might not be as willing to ask for help because that is one thing that I think about sometimes maybe it was easier for us because people didn't expect much from us because we were new grads. So I can't imagine coming into this being seen as someone with years of ER experience and not being prepared for it and having to deal with, you know, kind of go through what we went through. Um, I think that makes a big difference. As we, as we come near to the end here, Caroline, what is, what is your outlook of EM, NPs, and, and PAs in, in the market of emergency medicine? I definitely think there's a lot of opportunity still uh, for us in the future. I think it's just going to be interesting to see really how programs shift. I, I personally believe we're opening up too many PA schools. And so, you know, what does that look like in 10 years? What does the market look like in 10 years? I think there's always going to be jobs, but COVID changed a lot. A lot of our experienced uh, PAs that I looked up to and really um, emulated are gone. And so now, you know, in our department, there's just not a lot of people with ED experience. It's interesting to see, you know, what, what's going to happen in 10 years. I do think there's going to be a lot of opportunity, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, do, do schools change requirements? Are, um, you know, residency is going to become more of a driving force? Um, I don't know what will happen, but I do think there's opportunity. And I, like we said earlier, I definitely think there is a role for new grads in the department if the environment is set up correctly. But um, I'm not sure what it will look like in 10 years, to be honest. And Carly, uh, can you share with us what what is your outlook on the practice of NPs and PAs in the emergency department? I agree with Caroline. I think there's a lot of opportunity because there's definitely a need um, and so that's an opportunity for us to fill that gap. Um, like Caroline said, there's a lot of turnover. So seeing what it's going to look like in 10 years is going to be interesting. And is there a way to make this a profession that you can last more than 10 years in, you know, because I've said to Caroline so many times, I mean, we, I love what we get to do. And I'm like, I don't want to quit, but I could not do the last two years for 10 years, you know? 
So I think it'll be um, kind of like what you said, making the right fit. And also if we are like, I think there's definitely a place for new grads and it's just going to be emergency departments adjusting, like you said, to figuring out their needs and figuring out a way to set up if you can't have some kind of a formal residency, um, a way to bring on new grads in a way that's going to create and form like really good emergency medicine PAs and nurse practitioners, um, not just throwing them into the fire and then they fail and be like, okay, they're a new grad, they couldn't handle it. Um, so I definitely think that there's a need for it. There's an opportunity and hopefully it'll, you know, departments can adjust and take advantage of all of these new PAs and nurse practitioners that are going to um, be in the workforce soon because there are so many PA programs now and nurse practitioner programs. So it'll be interesting. Definitely something to watch. Um, as we come to a close here, some, some brief parting questions, Caroline, what book or movie would you recommend to the audience? Carla, you can jump in if you have one. I have two. I have a book and a show. The book is actually going to be helpful for people in medicine. I, I just started it, so but I it's called Burnout by uh, Emily Nagoski. Um, yep. So I just started it, but uh, I'm really interested in it. It's been good so far. Um, excited to finish it. But then my second recommendation is uh, a show called Shrinking. I just started it. And I'm already like five episodes in. It's really it's lighthearted. It's funny. So. I think those two paired together can help. Well, it's exactly what I need after after a shift. <laughs> All right, Caroline, you're you're on the hot plate now. <laughs> Honestly, the only thing I could think of was when I was in the midst of COVID, I was stressed out because I thought I was going to kill someone every day, and I was isolated. What got me through was the show Friends because they felt like my friends, <laughs> and I just could like kind of escape for a little bit, and um, I felt like I was friends with Monica Chandler. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. It just makes me feel old because I remember when that show first came out. <clears throat> okay. How about uh, Carly? Is there a hero of the department uh, that you'd like to give a shout out to? They may never hear this. Just it, And it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be a clinician. Just somebody that, that you'd like to say, hey, for what, for whatever reasons, this is somebody who I consider a hero of the department. Um, well, I feel like it's kind of cheating because she's here, but honestly, Caroline, she carries the department on her back sometimes. I mean, she's, when she talks about me surpassing her, that's a joke because I mean, I'm just constantly amazed at like the acuity that she sees and how quickly she, if I ask her, I'll call her still on shifts or text her. And when she responds to me, you know, she knows things off the top of her head and also just not only the number of patients that she's able to see and stay up with her charts and still, you know, it's not like she's being dangerous. Like she's not going to see, she knows her limit, but her limit is, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever get there. (laughs) So. Uh, Same question, Caroline, here with the department. Well, I have to say you. You're not allowed Um, to say me. (laughs) You have to say Omar. And I mean, I also have to say Omar. Um, I mean, I, I can get emotional talking about this, but I, I recognize that I will never have, uh, probably never have a boss uh, like you. And I've told you this before, but it's just special when you meet someone who you can trust wholeheartedly and who, I mean, you're really the reason why Carl and I are still here. And 
the amount of work that you put into your, um, the people that you worked with and the, the stuff that you did behind the scenes that we'll never know about. I mean, I'm, I always just feel so blessed and grateful that you took a chance on us because again, we would not be here without you. And, um, you know, to anyone listening, I'm going to put this plug in wherever you go, whatever job you go into, you need to make sure you have someone who's in your corner, who's going to protect you. Cause as a PA, as a new grad PA, you're stepping into a lot of unknowns and a lot of darkness. And um, before I started this job, I just remember praying for protection. And obviously, I mean, Omar can't protect everything, but uh, I think he was an answer to prayer because he protected Carly and I, and he he made he made this opportunity and, and allowed us to succeed. And uh, I would not be this PA without you. So I appreciate it. Well, thank, I think I've told thank you that, that's very, but I hope you know that. Very humbling. And uh, I'm sure undeserved, but um, I'm very uh, grateful. Folks, we've been listening to Caroline Chadwell, emergency medicine PA, and Carly Owens, emergency medicine PA. Um, in, in their initial start, uh, we, behind the scenes, lovingly, truly lovingly, referred to them as the twins because I never had two brand new grads at, at the same time. And what made it easy was what Carly already talked about, a lot of Caroline's leadership with, with Carly. And the second uh, thing that made it easy is they, they both had just hearts of a, of, of a lion that could, that could push through everything. So I would never refer to them uh, as twins again because it doesn't appropriately uh, capture who they are. And who are they? They are modern leaders now in the emergency department. And they're the face of what emergency medicine will look like for the years to come. I want to thank you both, Caroline and Carly. Thank you very much for joining us uh, today. I would like to thank our podcast producers, the great team at uh, Earfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. For over 20 years, I worked with you. I learned from you. I've been inspired by you. I know the sacrifices that you and your families have made. I know that challenges that you face, more importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NPNPA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode, and don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.